Well, guys, we're going to go ahead and jump right into it this morning. We started a sermon series on 1 Peter uh, last week, and we called that sermon series Exiles. And we unpacked that just a little bit, but before we dive in, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 if you have a Bible. If not, you can follow me along on the screen. I'll get into it just shortly. But would you mind just taking a moment here? Let's pray over this word this morning. So, Father, we just thank you so much. God, for your continual guidance, because we need it in this life. And Lord, just as we've spoken this morning, um, God, you, you want to deal with our anxieties. You want to deal with all of our fears. You want to deal with, with, with our minds, God, that are just uh, torn in different directions all the time. And, and God, you give us peace through your word. You give us life through your word. You bring transformation into our hearts through your word. And so as we unpack this this morning, God, I'm asking that your Holy Spirit would come and do a work in all of our hearts and our minds, God, so that we can know you more, that your will would be known in our hearts, and God, that we'd be transformed so that we can carry out that will with our very lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Peter addresses the people of God, and when he addressed them, we talked about this yesterday, he used a very specific uh, phrase for them specifically. He called them elect exiles, elect exiles. Elect means chosen, means that God hand-selected you for a specific purpose, but exile means that you're living in another country or another place that is not your home, and you've been sent there for a very specific purpose. Now, there's a tension in this phrase because you're chosen by God, you're loved by God, you're called by God, but at the same time, He sent you into a world that has actually rejected you. So you're loved by God, but you're rejected by the world. You're chosen by God, but the world has not chosen you at all. Matter of fact, the world is at odds with you. And so there's this constant t tension in the Christian life where we realize that God is for us, but also we're now currently living in a world that is not our own. It's, it, it's, it's, not, it's not where we're supposed to be seeking out our reward. And we're delicately living in this balance of the fact that we are in this world, but we are not to be of this world. And we're to demonstrate God's glory in the mid middle of of it. Now he talks specifically to the fact that while you were in this world, actually it's set up in such a way that you're going to experience various trials. You're going to be grieved by various trials, but through it, God is going to give you the power and the means to get through it so that he said you could actually rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory even at your worst times. So he's talking about this, and we know the story about Peter, how ultimately Peter laid down his life. He watched his wife lay down, his lay down her life for the gospel. But he uses that language of elect exile for a very specific purpose. We talked about how they were scattered throughout the world into different places, and he's writing this letter to the Christian church in about 67 A.D. or thereabout. Now, if you go into another country, if you are in exile, and you're living in another country, there's a few different postures that you can take while living in another country. Number one, is you can be an immigrant, for example. And if you're an immigrant, you come from another country into this particular country, but really what you want at the end of the day is you want citizenship. You, uh, and if you, become, if you come from another country and you become an American, basically they'll take you through this, this series of events and you've got to pass a test. You actually have to go to a ceremony where you pledge your allegiance to the United States of America. And then you adopt their language, you adopt their culture, and all of these things in order to become an American. Now, as Christians, we're not immigrants. We're not sent here to rub shoulders with the world and ultimately take on the language of the world. Just like I said before, we're not immigrants. We're called to come into this world to be ambassadors to transform the world so that the world would adopt the language of heaven that we're speaking. Amen. Secondly, though, you could be not an immigrant, but you could be a tourist. And a tourist is somebody who goes into a country, but they're not really wanting to get involved. Like They're going to stay in their own personal group. They're not, they're not going to mingle too much with the locals. If, if they do mingle with locals, they're going to be sure and have a translator. I remember I went to, I went to India. I've been to Africa. Uh, both those times when I went, the guys that I went with, it's like they, would, they didn't want to eat the food down there. They're just tourists, man, just passing through. They didn't want to, they didn't want to live. When I go to a place, when I go to India, if they give me a goat head, son, I want to eat the goat head. You know what I'm talking about? They're like, sir, no, 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 no. You can't eat that. You don't understand. Americans can't stomach that. I said, give me the stuff. You know what I'm saying? I want it all. I want the full experience. I'm not just a tourist. I want to engage. 
engage in this thing, right? But that's, that's the thing. When you, when you are a tourist, you just are sort of passing by. You see the evil in the world, but I'm just going to stay over here in my corner. I'm not going to engage in culture at all. But see, God has called us to be a, a different and to respond differently. Yeah, we're not of this world, but we're called to engage in it as exiles. We are here, with, and not to be of it, but we are on a mission to transform it. We're not here to conform to this world, but we're here to bring people out of this world so that ultimately they can get their citizenship where our citizenship is in heaven. And so we're sent here on a very specific mission as elect exiles. If you remember in Israel's history, they were sent into a place called Babylon. Now Peter, even in his letter, he says to the elect lady in Babylon, He's talking about, it's a metaphor for the church that is living in a corrupt world system. Babylon, it means the gate of the gods, but it also means confusion. In other words, when you go into Babylon, you are in a place that they have opened the gates to all the false gods, where they worship all the false gods, but what it ends up bringing in is it brings in mass confusion. This is where we are at in America. America, symbolically, is under the system of spiritual Babylon. You can read this in the book of Revelation. And so he says, you're exiles in this land. You're in it, but you're not of it. Now, when he sends them into exile in Babylon, he says in Jeremiah 29, verse 4 through 7, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. In the language there, Jerusalem is foundation of peace. Babylon is confusion or the gate of the gods. And he says, but when you're going there into this place that doesn't know your language, it's going to try to teach you a different worldview, it's going to try to educate you into a place where you deny your God and bow the knee to other gods, he says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. Why should you not decrease? Because he says, you know, I want you to go in here and have influence. I want you to live lives that people see and they say, wow, they live a different life than we live and I see the glory of God on it and it brings them to a place of repentance. He says, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So he's saying, you live in this place that's way different than you, has different belief, that they worship other gods than you, but I've sent you there for a specific purpose on a mission just like Daniel. Do you remember when Daniel and the three Hebrew, Hebrew children went into Babylon? They offered them, hey, eat our food, take our stuff, receive our education. And Daniel said, no, 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 I'm not going to eat that stuff. And he said, you got to understand, you got to eat this. You ain't got nothing to eat. He said, just watch and see. I'm not going to eat your stuff. I'm not going to receive your education. But watch and see if I'm not wiser, smarter, and healthier than anybody else in the land because my God's going to protect me. And so he did. And over the course of 80 years, Daniel was so influential in Babylon that he actually turned three kings from the worship of false gods to the worship of the real one true God. And that's what he's saying. You are a chosen exile in a land that worships false gods. But if you live and you're faithful to the one true God, he will empower you and give you wisdom and keep you pure so that the people around you can not help but recognize that guy's worshiping the true God. He's worshiping the real one. The way he lives works in society, and this is the way that it's to be done. But see, you need to understand that because we're in exile, this is what Peter says. He says, because of this, that you're in a place and in a hostile environment that doesn't understand you, it's going to be the opposite of the way that God's calling you to live. He says in 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now this first language, this first phrase, he says, prepare your minds for action. How many of y'all, you prepared your minds for action this morning? Yep. That's the same response I got in the 9 a.m. It's like, no, none of us did it. We didn't get, we, we, look, best thing I do, Clay, I got my clothes on. You know what I'm saying? I ate a frozen ego, and, and I'm here. What more do you want from me? All right. Preparing your minds for action, he says. If you read it in the great Greek language, it says to gird up the loins of your mind. And my thought is, I, don't need, I didn't even know my mind had loins. You know what I'm talking about? He says, gird up the loins of your mind. And in those days, they would wear robes. 
And so if you was going to get in a fight, if you was going to go to battle, if you was going to play a pickup basketball game, even though basketball hadn't been created at that time, you'd have to gird up your loins, pull your robe up, wrap them around your loins. Now the loins, interestingly enough, is the reproductive region. But he's saying gird up the loins of your mind because the thoughts that you receive... The things that you ingest on a daily basis, the TV shows you watch, the education you receive, it causes thoughts, does it not? It causes thoughts. Could be anxious thoughts, could be fearful thoughts, could be just just different ideologies that are different than Scripture. But he says if you don't gird up your mind, those things will get into your mind and they will reproduce in your conduct and in your behavior and in your life until the world around you looks just like the world because this world is designed to train you to live in an antichrist way. Amen. And so we're fighting with that. And he says, you've got to be sober-minded, not naive. You, got, you can't be naive to the current world that you're living in. You've got to be sober-minded because you've got an adversary, the devil, who's walking about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And he devours those who ingest these things without a sober mind and simply swallow the blue pill of culture and end up conforming to this system, to this world. So he says be sober-minded and aware of the environment that you are in because you are engaged in a cosmic warfare of a culture that's trying to intoxicate you. It's fact, isn't it? And see, the, the scary thing about it is, is, is that I notice that most people don't really notice it fully. They just slowly are conformed to it and embrace it. Now, you talk about a sober mind. In the scripture, actually, Paul, just in the pastoral epistles alone, he says, be sober-minded ten times. Have you ever heard anybody tell you to be sober-minded? No, we don't use that language that much, do we? But what, it's pretty easy. What's the opposite of sober? You can say it this morning in church. Do you, anybody know? It's drunk. That's right. It's exactly right. It's drunk. Now, here's the thing about drunk people. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation. I'm sure nobody in here has ever been drunk. Uh, hallelujah. Uh, but, but if you just so happen to be around one that was drunk, I've been around a few in my life, okay? Back in the day when I was in college, high school, I got around a few drunk folks from time to time. But here's the thing about drunk people is, is do they ever really make any sense? Y'all ever been around them? No, they don't, they don't make much sense. But what's interesting is they think what they're doing and what they're saying makes the most sense. Like they'll fight you over it. You know what I'm saying? They get aggressive when they get real drunk and they got an idea. I remember specifically, I had a, when I was reading through this scripture, I was just thinking about all the times that I was in weird situations like that. Me and my buddy, I guess one night, we were about 18, 19 years old. I lived in an apartment in Richmond. We walked outside. We'd had a few to drink. You know what I'm saying? And so we walked, we walked outside. This is before I knew Jesus. And we walked outside. And it was about 2 or 3 in the morning. And we were just sort of sitting there looking around. And, and we look up and the moon is just up there beautiful in the sky. And all of a sudden, and he begins to howl okay and it was really loud and he kept howling and he kept howling and in my mind I thought this is a good idea and so I looked at the moon I began to howl and it switched from a howl. I know I know I get it and it switched from a howl to a holler and he just kept hollering and he kept hollering until our neighbors these these nice young ladies come outside and they say guys we got tests tomorrow. We got stuff to do. Why don't y'all shut up? We can't sleep. It's 2 a.m. What are you doing? And he said, let me tell you something. You ain't never going to tell me to quit hollering. And he just commenced to hollering until other people came out. Then the guys down the street come out. And then there's like a fight, you know, getting ready to play. And I was like, all right. I was like, all right, listen, bro, let's calm down. Let's go back inside. And he was resistant. He was, and he walked inside. And he looked at me with the most serious face. He said, let me tell you something. Ain't nobody ever going to tell me when to quit hollering. I'll never stop hollering. In that moment... As strange as that is, I know that's an anticlimactic story. My point is, it didn't make much sense, made perfect sense to him. Made perfect sense to him. Can I tell you that in our culture today, that's basically the world we live in. We are so intoxicated that we're hollering belligerent statements that make no sense whatsoever, and we're totally convinced that this is the way that we should live, the things that we should say, and what we should believe. It's in our culture. It's just like that. We're intoxicated by a system of ideas that is moving us in a direction far away from God. And we're just hollering it belligerently. This is what you see in America. This is exactly what you see in America. And we need a sober mind. He says a sober mind is basically the, the language it means to keep sane. And it's the alternative of being deranged. But the idea, I need you to understand this. Media in our world today is literally designed to keep you in an, an emotional frenzy. They make money off you. 
if they can keep you in an emotional frenzy. They make money if they can keep you divided. They make money if they can stir up your emotions. In our world today, it's not important necessarily to have a sober mind because the question we ask people is not, is not what do you think about this? The question we ask is, how do you feel about this? We don't care about people thinking. You don't need to think. You need to feel. How does, it, does it make you feel good? Does it make you feel? It's all about feelings. And this is why the gospel is being rejected at a, at a more alarming rate because guess what? The gospel begins with your sinfulness. The gospel begins with the fact that you are wrong, that you're in sin, that you need to repent and turn to a holy God in repentance. And guess what? Ain't nobody wants to hear that. Why? Because it don't make me feel good. I want to hear something that makes me feel good. The scripture even says that in the last days, many would depart from the, from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons and replacing teachers who taught them the real truth about the Bible with teachers that would actually tickle their itching ears. Can you believe that? I know you're like, hey, let's replace Clay. He said some things I didn't much care for. Amen. I need somebody to tickle my ears. Come, come down here. I'll give you a tickle, right? But then I'm going to preach what the Bible says. Amen. So in Mark 5, if you remember, there was a demoniac and he was possessed with a legion of demons. Jesus comes to him, shows up, casts the demons out into swine. They go into the water. This man is out of control. He's literally in a mania. And it says, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Can I tell you that that same legion is what is pulling our world in so many divided thoughts and so many divided ideas and going this direction and that direction. There are a million different demonic doctrines that are loose in our world, pulling people in a million different directions, and Jesus wants to set us free from this culture and its way of thinking. And how does it happen? We sit at the feet of Jesus and we find our right mind. He found his right mind at the feet of Jesus. When he bowed down at Jesus and he said, well, I, we know who you are. You're the Holy One. You're the Son of God. Jesus sets him free. And when they found him in his right mind, they were afraid. Sometimes a right mind in this world will strike fear in the, in the culture. People are afraid of a right mind. They want somebody to be intoxicated with the culture's lies, but God wants to move us from being in a state of intellectual and emotional frenzy and craziness and come to turn off the media and come to the feet of Jesus to receive truth so that we're not intoxicated and we have a right mind. He's saying, I need you to have a sober mind in this generation because this world is trying to move us in the way of the demoniac rather than the way of the disciple. Let me give you a few mindsets that are opposed to a sober mind real quick. You good? So this morning, the anxious mind, um, you know, sometimes we, we get so overwhelmed with our fears and our anxieties. I remember in 2020 when things were just going wayward and I'd just taken over the church. I got so anxious that during that summer I almost had, I, I almost had like, a, like a, a severe panic attack that sort of took place over the course of two weeks. And the Lord spoke to me in prayer and he said, Son, you're so anxious about these things that I, honestly I've got in control. You're so anxious about these things that you don't have a mind that can actually stop to see what I've got right in front of you. And at that point in this ministry and in that church, in the church, we were actually growing more than we ever had. We were reaching more people than we ever had. But I was so anxious I couldn't see what God was doing in front of me because I didn't have a sober mind. Secondly is the distracted mind. So many of us have we so many things in our lives, so many addictions that we're distracted from what God would actually have us do right now in our lives. The distracted mind. There's the selfish mind, which a lot, of, a lot of us struggle with. And that's just like, hey, I'm in this for me. I don't really care about other folks. Whatever it works out best for me is what I want to stick with and what I want to do. I'm going to do me and let you do you. And that's, that kind of goes into the complacent mind because a lot of people are here. It's just like, you know what? I ain't got a dog in the fight. I'm not going to engage in culture. You do you. I'll do me. And I won't say nothing to you if you don't say nothing to me because I don't want to offend nobody. And I'm just going to go with the flow, whatever it takes. If you go with that flow, you'll get caught up in in it and drown by it amen fifthly is the cynical mind which is just people that that are so bitter that all they can do is critique and speak negatively about people and places and things and what's happening and they're so bitter that they have a cynical mind and not a sober mind sixthly the last one i have here is the reprobate mind and the reprobate mind if you don't know in romans 1 it says that people in our generation and throughout history have rejected god as creator 
refuse to give him thanks as designer, and because they continue to reject God so that they can hold on to their unrighteousness, ultimately God gives them over to sinful practices, and finally he gives them over to a reprobate mind. And a reprobate mind is, is, is a mind that sees good and calls it evil, and it sees evil and calls it good, and it says that if you like the good, you're to be hated, and if you like the evil, you're to be loved. And then it chooses to practice immoral behaviors and affirm and celebrate those who practice immoral behaviors. This is the reprobate mind. Now here's the beauty of the book of Romans. In, in our culture, people will teach, well, if you've got a reprobate mind, you'll never be saved. No, no, no. See, Rome, that's just Romans chapter 1. Jesus came and saved me from a reprobate mind. There was a time when I believed that good things were evil and evil things were good, but Jesus came up and showed up and convicted me by the power of the Holy Spirit and gave me a chance for repentance and faith in Him. And He renewed my mind and transformed my heart and He changed me and now I see the good and I see the beautiful that's in God so he can save anybody and give them a sober mind but here's the problem our culture is becoming so invasive through media through politics through all these things that not only is it invading just the common person in the home it's actually invading the church do you realize that like the church is beginning, Matt actually shared a testimony. He, him and Brian went to a conference uh, this a uh, couple of weeks ago, I think, to, to a, a youth conference, and there was a man from Germany there, and he basically said this to him. He said, the thing is, he said, in Germany, all the churches are empty because in Germany they adopted all of the mentalities of the culture and the world to rub shoulders with the world. They changed their doctrine. They took out some parts of the Bible, and they ceased to teach it, and their churches are now empty. Why? Because they're just like the world and don't have anything different to offer them my fear is is that in america it's the opposite we're going to fill churches up because we have adopted the mentality of the world and they love to be affirmed in the ways of the world they want somebody to pat them on the back and say that's good keep living apart from god Right, so, so, so that's where we're at, and I know that's difficult for us to hear because everybody's highly emotional in our world, and, and, and for the Christian, you've got to understand that worshiping, it includes your thinking. Somebody said, well, I don't really like to think, I don't really like to do Bible study, I like to worship, and, and I like to sing songs. Well, look, praise God, you like to worship and you like to sing songs, you need to get into the Word of God. You need to become a student of Scripture to understand the difference between what's going on in our culture and what's actually written in Scripture. But here's the other thing. Some people, you like, you like to read the Bible, but you don't like to worship. The truth of the matter is you need to come in here with some passionate worship, and you need to receive the Word of God. You might even take a note every now and then. You may go home and open your Bible so that what? So that you spend more time receiving the truth of God's Word than you are just, just drowning in the media and the lies of culture. So that you can have a passionate relationship with God, but you're a thinking Christian that's not just living a mindless life. Amen. Now when I was, uh, you care if I get a little bit weird naked, this is going to be boring for about 10 minutes. If you need to take a nap, just go just drift off and then, and then I'll do that or something and we'll come back, okay? This is going to be a little bit academic, and it may not make much sense, but I need you to understand this. So when I was in, was, when I was in college, I, st I wanted to know the truth. Anybody ever wanted to know the truth? Like, am, I, am I being lied to? What's going on? So I took a class in college called The Search for Meaning in the Modern World. And it, it, it put, took me down a rabbit hole of, like, I took philosophy courses that I didn't even need to take. You know what I'm saying? That's just what, what I did. I added extra courses onto my schedule and took a little extra. Got into philosophy. We, we, we studied guys like Frederick Nietzsche, Rene Descartes, right? Rousseau, uh, Michael Foucault, all these cool dudes. You know what I'm saying? Like, and, and probably most of you all, here's what I say, most of you all probably have no idea who those guys are that I just said. No idea. But can I tell you this? You don't know their names and you don't know what they teach, but they have start, started at the top and in the heads of the elites that has become their religion and it drips down into society through politics, through religion, through government, through legislation so that most of our world actually believes exactly what they taught and have adopted their mindsets and don't even know who they are. See how you, that was the wake up. If you nod it off, you can wake up now. 
So when I was in college, I'm reading these guys. I went to seminary, and we started reading more of these guys. And when I first went to seminary, I took classes, and I'm like, they're talking about postmodernism all the time. And I said, boys, I come here for somebody to teach me the Bible. What are y'all talking about? What are y'all talking about? But then it began to make sense a little bit because I'm studying all these guys and what they believe, and then all of a sudden I'm looking at the world, and I'm looking at what I, because what I believe is strong in the Scripture. But then all of a sudden I'm looking at a world, and I see Christians that are now believing all of these other things, and they have no idea why they believe it. It just feels right to them. Why? Because they're looking at media and culture and politics more than they're looking at God's Word. So whenever what happens, now, now we all believe, we don't have a sober mind anymore. Matter of fact, there was a study done, a Barna study in 2015, if you want to put that up. But practicing Christians in 2015, these numbers have increased. But practicing Christians in 2015, 61% agreed with ideas rooted in New Age spirituality. That's crazy. I don't know if you know what New Age spirituality is. I don't have time to break it down. 54% resonate with postmodernist views. 38% are sympathetic to the teachings of Islam. 36% accept ideas associated with Marxism. 29% believe ideas based on secularism. And 40% believe any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. Now, here's the thing. We have all these competing worldviews. And like I said, it bleeds down into the culture. And now it's bleeding into the church. And there's such pressure for the world to conform us. And, and one of the, like, America's... America's religion, for the most part, is humanistic secularism. Now, you, you may not know what that, that, what that is, but hang out with me, because basically what it is is it's a philosophy that's infiltrated the world, and it's basically this. You and I, there's no God, there's no spiritual realm. It's just the material world. And see, what we need to do is shut religion and church out as much as we can because we don't need people believing that they're living for an afterlife or a judgment. We need people to believe that they're living for the here and now so that we can progress as human beings because this is all there is and we got to do the best with what we got right now to the best of our ability. And not only that, now because there is no God, you're just a highly evolved animal. So any impulse that you feel, you need to go with it as much as you can because the key goal of life is personal happiness and self-expression amen no 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 the goal of life is to give God your entire spirit soul body and mind to love him with all of your heart and to love others in the same way so that your life lives as glory to God matter of fact I deny myself in this life for the glory of the life to come we're not living for this world we're exiles here this ain't the end folks if the best I can get is here and now I'm pretty upset about it anyway you know what I mean like I'm looking for something beyond that but see there's also Marxism and it's and it's deeply infiltrated our culture the Bible is the best-selling book of all time the second best-selling book of all time is the communist manifesto and many people in religion and government, I shouldn't say religion, I should say many people in government and elites have almost adopted Marxism as a religion without telling you about it. But it, it's actually coming out in culture because in Marxism, basically you've got the oppressed and you have the oppressor. And so the, the best thing that you can be is a victim. Anybody amen me? The best thing you can be is a victim. So if you apply Marxism to culture, basically if you apply it to gender, well, we need to dismantle our ideas about gender. And so if we believe there's male and female, no, 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 we've got to dismantle cisgender privilege. That's what they actually say. That's the language they use. Therefore, gender needs to be fluid. We, we believe that marriage is, is between a man and a woman and they have kids. They say we need to dismantle the, pres the prescribed nuclear family. So basically, we want to break down mother and father and children, and we want the state to even be able to control children's lives and make decisions for their well-being and those types of things. And then not only that, but we need, to, we need to do it in government. So we need to dismantle the old structures. We need to get rid of church. We need to get rid of military. We need to get rid of police officers. Have you ever heard any of this in our culture? It's called Marxism. It's a false gospel because they believe that if you do this, they can actually set up heaven on earth. And I tell you, there's only one person going to set up heaven on earth, and his name ain't Karl Marx. He's in a grave somewhere. Okay, he's in a grave somewhere. He was influenced by demonic powers. There's things that he said that you, you don't want no part of. But see, it's infiltrating our culture, and we don't even realize it. They, don't, they want to dismantle everything. Postmodernism, uh, a guy named Michael Foucault developed this idea. He said, there is, no, there is no absolute truth. There's only your truth. Now, you, people don't know Michael Foucault, but how many people have you heard in our culture say, I'm living my truth? 
because they adopted that mentality. They adopted this philosophy. But see, there is not just your truth. There's one truth. And His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody must bow the knee to Him and walk out and live in that truth. But see, this is infiltrating the church where it's like, well, you know, Jesus might be my truth, but you may have another truth. And Oprah and all these people are always asking people, well, is there other ways to God than Jesus Christ? No, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no man can come to the Father except through me. And if we as the church don't believe that and preach it in great love and compassion for people, what we do is allow people to take other paths that lead to destruction even if we just save a handful it's going to be better than just letting everybody take the broad path to destruction we need to understand that this is the truth and if we believe look if you're not a christian that's fine go off and live with the rest. but if you say you name the name of christ you live in the truth my friends that's one of my greatest pet peeves if you're not a christian if you're not following christ shut the doors on the church quit calling yourself a christian but if you believe Jesus, let's believe Jesus and let's hold firm to the truth. Amen. And that doesn't mean that we're rude. That doesn't mean that we mistreat people. But it does mean that we have a sober mind because we understand the reality of the world that we're currently living in. And it's trying to get us to change our mind at any cost. Lastly, is there's, there's deconstructionism. I don't want to get into too much of this. I saw some of you already drift off. But deconstructionism is a postmodernist view, and basically they apply it to all forms of literature that, that, that everything is written ultimately to oppress people, and so we need to apply it to the Bible. And so even pastors do this now, and here's the way that they do it. They'll say, well, you know, here's the thing. Um, the Bible is not really God's Word because Jesus is God's Word. Now, that's tr that's tr the, the part about Jesus being God's Word is true. The part about the Bible not being God's Word is false okay but now they say but see so really if we can't trust the bible then we can't trust what the bible says about jesus so jesus is really this way and now we use our new jesus to confront the bible that's literally what people are doing and what they're doing is they're sacrificing the truth on the altar of some kind of sentimental love that culture now says just love everybody just affirm everything and just and just and just go with everything and it's a false kind of love true love holds on to the truth and preaches it passionately and boldly for the sake of others that might be saved and I know that's a difficult thing in our culture but see we have to engage and prepare our minds for action verse 13 again let me read it again therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded not drunk by the culture set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance but as he who called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct since it is written you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now that's a pretty big command, isn't it? Like being holy as God is holy, that sounds pretty heavy. If you talk about holiness, the key word in holiness, the Hebrew word is kadosh. Why don't you say that and spit on somebody right quick? Kadosh, right? It's holy. And the Hebrew word, it means to be separated from or to be cut away from. And the idea is that if God is holy, He is completely other, He is distinct, He is not like you. He is perfect in purity, perfect in justice, perfect in love, flawless in character, never failing. And so He's completely separate in that sense. Exodus 15, 11, it says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? See, holiness means that you are separated from all impurity. In the Old Testament, they had God's holiness was such a, a, a real thing in their lives that they basically had regulations and rituals set up that they couldn't come into the presence of God without cleansing, right? Nobody, not anybody could just come into the presence of God or go into the temple of God. Matter of fact, even when they were writing Scripture, they thought God was so holy that if they came to the word Yahweh or the word Lord, whenever they were writing, they would go and go through ritual cleansing, cleanse their hands, wash their hands, cleanse themselves, offer a sacrifice, come back, write Yahweh, yud heh vav -Hey, the name of the Lord, go back and cleanse themselves again, and then come back and begin writing again. This is how holy God was to them. And see, this is so important to understand because the one thing that we've lost in our generation really is the holiness and purity of God. If we say, 
Name one word where God, that explains God. What everybody will say is love. And the Bible says, absolutely, God is love. It says that God is holy in Scripture hundreds more times than it says God is love. So take that into consideration because God is not just love, He is holy love. And those two things are very important because when you look at the old covenant, when God is revealing Himself as holy, it's hard for us to understand. It's just like, man, God's judgmental. He's dangerous. He's just killing people at the drop of the hat. What's going on? It's because He's trying to reveal His holiness because if you don't realize how impure you are, you will not realize the greatness of the gift of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. See, most people want the grace of God, but they don't even think they need it because they think they're pretty good people. And what I'm telling you is you if you ever stood before a holy God, it would shatter your existence. You would see the impurity and the darkness in your heart to such a degree that you had no other choice but to fall on your face and cry out holy and cry out for mercy. This is how pure God is. This is how separate He is. This is how distinct He is in our world. This is why Habakkuk 1.15, it says, Your eyes, Lord are too pure to look on evil, you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. He's too holy to tolerate wrongdoing or to to look on evil. And we just sort of think that Jesus just slides up beside us in our sin and pats us on our back and tries, like Jesus is here to make us feel good about our sin. Now Jesus came to destroy our sin. Amen. So his eyes are too good to... Now, I know most Americans, they hate the word holiness. They hate the word holy. They don't like it. Like even churchgoers, it's like, oh, holier than thou. You don't do that. Oh, holy. You know, y'all ever had anybody do that to you? They say, eh. They don't like the word holy because they think holy being some kind of religious, boring, like rules that just, that just sort of impede your life and keep you locked into this corner and to be a weird person. But now the holiness of God is something that's beautiful. If you ever actually see it and experience it, you've never seen anything more beautiful and glorious than the holiness and the purity of God. But he says your eyes are too pure to look on evil. And you think, well, then God, how is it that you can look on me? Here's what he's trying to say. Have you ever seen something that was so immorally reprehensible that you couldn't even watch it? You're like, oh, my gosh, I can't watch that. You ever seen anything like that? Like if you were forced to watch a molestation right now, God forbid, could you look at it? Could you? It's so morally reprehensible that you couldn't stand it. But see, here's the thing. You and I, we've been desensitized to a lot of impurity. There's a lot of things that we'll watch and we'll behold. But God is saying, no, 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 I can't look at that stuff. And see, here's the thing. Even if we were to look at something like that, that was that evil, an act of rape, an act of child abuse, not only could we not watch it, we would have anger and wrath in our hearts toward the perpetrator. Wouldn't we? And that's because God has that same holiness in his heart. And this is why one day when he brings judgment, it will be a good thing that he brings this judgment. If you remember Uzzah, I talked about him a few weeks ago when we were talking about worship. They're transporting the Ark of the Covenant, which is representative of God's presence and holiness. And as they're transporting it, the Ark of the Covenant starts to shake, and Uzzah just reaches out and tries to prop it up. And as soon as he touches it, he falls dead there on the spot. And my thought is, when I first read this, I'm like, man, God, all Uz is trying to do is help you out. The cart was falling off. What do you want him to do? Let it touch the ground? And the Lord said to me in my spirit, you know what? What Uzzah got wrong was the fact that he thought his hand was more clean than the ground. That ground had never blasphemed God. That ground had never touched an impure thing. That ground had never had an impure thought. See, we we presume that we are good enough to come before a holy God and approach Him just however we want to. This is why the high priests, when they would go into the presence of God, they would tie a rope around their leg and put bells on them because they thought they might drop dead in the presence of God. See, God is so holy and so pure and so other than than you that if you were to stand in the holiness of God, it would kill you dead instantly. And one day, in your glorified body, you're going to stand before the holiness and the presence of God, and the fire of His holiness and purity is going to be so great that it will purge you from all sin. But your glorified body will be able to handle it. Now, I know this sounds really heavy right now at the moment, but here's what you have to understand. Because God is so holy, we couldn't have relationship with Him in our sinfulness. But Jesus, the only one, God's 
purity and holiness embodied shows up on the scene because we failed to maintain God's holiness code over and over again. Well, guess what? Jesus, the perfect man, shows up and demonstrates completely, perfectly holy conduct, living the life that God called human beings to live, but yet He absorbs my unholiness, your unholiness, all of our defilement, and goes to the cross, putting it to death on the cross, so that now through the blood of Jesus, there's an exchange. Even though I was unholy, His blood makes me holy so that now I can come into the presence of God. Jesus has done this for us. And see, that is why the gospel is such a beautiful thing. God was so holy that you and I were cut off from Him in our sin. But Jesus made a way for us to come back into the presence of God. This is a story in Isaiah chapter 6 that kind of reveals this idea. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And so he says, in the year King Uzziah died. Now here's what's interesting about Uzziah. He was a king, started as king at 16 years old, reigned for 52 years, lived a good life as king. Matter of fact, the Bible says that unlike a lot of other kings, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But at the end of his life, something strange happened. He got lifted up in pride a little bit and he went into the temple and he went into the presence of God where only the high priest was supposed to go and the priest tried to stop him and said, Uzziah, you don't know what you're doing. You don't need to go into the presence of God like that and presume, presume that you can do such a thing. But he goes in anyway and when he goes in anyway, what happens? Leprosy breaks out all over his body and he ends up dying. And Isaiah is weeping, mourning over the fact that this king has died He's worried about the holiness of God. He's he's seen it. God has brought it. And then he has an encounter in the temple himself doing priestly duties. And he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And he sees these these creatures all along the room. And here's what it says in verse 3. It says, and all these creatures, these living creatures, they cried out to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. See, the angels that dwell in the presence of God, the only thing they can cry out is holy, holy, holy. Because He's so different, He's so pure, He's so magnificent, but they have no other choice but to cry out holy because of this unapproachable light that God is dwelling in. And then it says in verse 4 and 5, It says, And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now in this moment, do you think that he feels like the Lord is his buddy? Do you feel like in this moment he thinks Jesus is his homeboy? No, in this moment, he's having an encounter with a holy God that dwells in unapproachable light. And his only response, listen, in that moment, all of his moral failures are completely laid bare. Everything's laid bare. The greatest moment of my life that I can remember to date is when Jesus showed up in my bedroom and set me free from everything that had bound me up. And I had such an encounter with his holiness that my first experience was, I may die right here. Woe is me. Because I experienced all of the filthiness in my heart, all of the sin that was in my heart, completely coming to the surface in a moment of time. And let me tell you, it is simultaneously one of the worst feelings and one of the best feelings. Because when God shows up in His holiness, He doesn't just show up in His holiness, but like I said, guess what? God is also love. Because at the same time, everything in me was being exposed and purged. Love was being poured out on my heart. And I felt Jesus say, I'm so glad to finally be able to set you free. But it's that point where you come, where you cry out, Woe is me! I realize the condition that I'm in. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And there's a revelation in God's holiness of what's going on. But here's the surprise. Verse 6 it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it, And said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Now, here's the thing. God's holiness up to this point, we just read about it. God's holiness was destroying people, wasn't it? 
He said, put a boundary up around this mountain. If you guys look on my face, you're, you're going to die. You can't come into the holy presence of God. But all of a sudden, something switches. Because Isaiah should have died in that holy presence, but instead, he realizes his filthiness, and somebody, this seraphim, brings a hot coal, touches his lips, and says, your sin is purged. All of a sudden, something holy touches something unholy and makes it clean. Up to this point, anytime something unclean touches a clean object... It becomes unclean. So Jesus shows up on the scene. Get this. Jesus shows up on the scene as God's embodiment of His presence. He is the Ark of the Covenant. He's the living embodiment of God's presence. He's the living embodiment of God's holiness. And He demonstrates His perfect holiness and purity, but something switches because, get this, in the Old Testament, if you touched a dead body, you're unclean. When Jesus touched dead bodies, they raised from the dead. If you touched somebody with an issue of blood, you were unclean. When a woman with an issue of blood touched Jesus, the opposite took place and he cleansed her. If you touched somebody with leprosy, that leprosy made you unclean. But when Jesus touched the leper, the leper was cleansed. What's happening? Jesus switches what holiness does. Holiness is no longer here through the blood of Jesus. Holiness is no longer here to destroy you. Holiness is now here to heal you. Think about what the blood of Jesus does. Think about what the cross does because everything changes on its head. And Jesus, he was the most holy, but he absorbed my unholiness, your unholiness, my defilement, your defilement. And he went to the cross as the perfect holy one. And as he took my unholiness, now he transfers righteousness to me. He transfers holiness and purity to me. And guess what? This is why the veil was torn in the temple. He says there's been a sacrifice made where, guess what? Now you are the temple. God doesn't dwell back in a, in a box somewhere in a room. He now dwells on the inside of you because the blood of Jesus has cleansed you so much that the Holy Spirit himself says that is my new dwelling place. That's where I want to live. That's the power of the blood of Jesus. And this is why Jesus says, hey, any, any man who thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And if you'll now come into my presence, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. And he's seeing a vision from Ezekiel where he saw out of the temple not people going in anymore, but waters flowing out of it. And he's saying now the holiness of God is not a, a room that a high priest goes into. The holiness of God is now in his people, and that holiness should flow out to heal the rest of the world. Think about that. You're now the temple of God. You're now the place where the holiness of God dwells, where the presence of God dwells. And see, we're not, we're not no longer afraid of coming into God's presence. Jesus' blood has made a way where he says, come into my presence and keep coming into my presence. And the more you draw near with sincere faith and a pure conscience that's been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, the more you come into my presence, the more you'll be transformed. The more holy you will become, the more you will experience my glory. Amen. So, in response to God's holiness, I'm going to read it again, 1 Peter 1, 14 and 15. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. When you were formerly ignorant, what were, what were some of your passions, right? I remember when I was ignorant, you know, I liked to get high. You know what I'm talking about? When I was ignorant... I like to party. I like to go out and party. When I was ignorant, I like to look at pornography. When I was ignorant in my former passions, I'd get angry and have a rage fest and cuss you all to pieces. When I was ignorant, I'd get around people talking bad about people and gossip with them in my former ignorance. But he says, no, no, no. Now that you've had an encounter with a holy God, don't allow yourselves to be conformed by this world back to your former lusts in your ignorance. But he said, as he who called you is holy, so you need to be holy in all your conduct. Now, this is an interesting one because somebody said, I don't know how to be holy. If you go out and try hard to be holy, you'll fail. But if you develop a relationship with a living God and you want nothing more than to be in His presence and you want nothing more to fall in love with this God and know Him and know His Word, guess what? In His presence, you will become like Him. If you try hard to change your behavior, you won't change anything. 
But if you worship this God that died for you, who is pure holiness, and you spend time with Him, His presence will rub off on you, and all of a sudden, all those old behaviors will start to break off. Some of you just think, well, I'm a Christian, but I still got all these old habits and bad habits, and I, I just can't change anything. You're exactly right. You can't change anything. The problem is you don't have a deep relationship with this Holy One. The problem is you have some externals. You come to church, maybe you say a prayer on occasion, but you don't have a deep enough relationship for there to be a transference of His holiness where those things begin to break off. Amen. Is that okay this morning? Just pastoring a little bit this morning. But holy conduct should be, th- be true in at least three areas. And number one is our devotion to Him. Our devotion to Him. Now I want, you to, I, I want to ask you something. If I, if I told Andrea, you know what, Andrea, you're my wife, I love you, I married you, you number one on my list. Does that mean that I got like 27 other women on the list too and it goes down to like number 28? You know what I'm saying? I mean, I got these other 28 women that I'm kind of talking to and I love them too, you know, but you're number one, babe. Anybody know that would be a bad day? be a real bad day if I did that. See, there, she's not just number one on my list. She is the list. She's the only one on the list. In the same way, you need to understand that God ain't number one on my list of priorities. God is my priority. He's not just number one on the list. He's the list. So my devotion to Him is in all things. I don't put on a church face on Sunday morning and then act differently at work or act differently around around, around my, my friends. I let God infuse every area of my life so that my devotion to Him is 100% in every aspect of my life. The way that I talk here is the way that I talk there. If I Look, the worst thing that I say up here is probably one of the worst things that I'll say up out there. I said some pretty sketchy stuff up here, y'all. You know what I'm saying? So it bleeds over into the rest of my life through devotion. Number two, it, holy conduct shows up in our adoration of Him. That I adore God. It shows up in what I talk about on a daily basis. But it, we, we, we've been talking about worship a lot lately and obedience. He says, he says, as obedient children. You know, worship is about being obedient. Do you realize that? I know we live in a very feeling culture. He said, well, I come in church, I just didn't feel anything this morning. Clay, that's why I didn't raise my hands or sing or where I just didn't feel nothing. Well, it's like I said, somebody said, well, I, I need to feel lead. I'm going to give you a piece of lead, and we're going to tape it to your finger so you always feel lead. <laughs> Amen. It's good. Pastor jokes. But here's the thing. The Scripture talks about give a joyful shout unto the Lord. Sing hallelujah to the Lord. Bring a joyful song into the presence of God. Enter His gates with thanksgiving. Enter His courts with praise. Shout with a loud voice of triumph. Kneel before the Lord in holiness. Lift up holy hands without wrath or doubting. All of these are imperatives. You know what that means if you're an English major? It means it's a commandment. And it doesn't mean that you wait till you feel like it. Nowhere in Scripture do I see where God says, Hey, come to me and worship with a subdued posture and a sour look on your face and a coffee in your hand. That ain't nowhere in the Bible. Amen. Y'all like us this morning? In our adoration of Him. Number three, we should have holy conduct in our character that reflects Him. You know, somebody said, somebody was talking the other day about how we got teachers in the high school and how these, these high school children nowadays, they just think it's absurd. I mean absurd that somebody would wait until marriage to have sex. They can't believe it. They, matter of fact, they don't even believe that anybody would do it. Somebody was talking about how they, they talked to somebody there that, with those kids, and, and some lady showed up uh, and said, well, actually, my husband and I did, and they were blown away with this reality. And see, that's the, the, what's the difference there? You know what that is? And, it, and it's, not, it's not a holier-than-thou thing. It's just pure, simple holiness. They're, they have a separate sexual ethic. It's not to boast or brag or say, I'm more holy than you or I'm more righteous than you. No, it's to reflect the beauty of God. It's not to say I'm better than you. It's not to say it's, it's because I'm in love with a God who says this is how I'm supposed to live. And I, I, I'd rather die than not please Him. I'd rather, die, I'd rather not be married at all than not please Him. I'd, I'd rather not have sex for the rest of my life than not please Him. I know some of that's going to blow your mind. But that's, we know what that's called. It's called holiness. When you show up and somebody at work and y'all are all gossiping and, and talking bad and you cuss a little bit, laugh a little bit, tell a filthy joke, a little filthy sexual joke, but this person doesn't really want a part of it. You know, they smile, they're nice, they're very kind, but they don't want to cuss and gossip with you all. You know what that is? It's called holiness. 
It's separate. It's distinct. They don't have the same language. They don't have the same mindset. He says, be holy in your conduct. Be separate so that the people around you recognize this person's different. This person's different than I am. And I know it's a difficult thing because we think, oh, Clay, you can't win nobody like that. Try to win them your way. Try to win them being just like them. You ain't going to win them to Jesus. You're going to win them to the world. Amen. Amen. Preaching good this morning. Hallelujah. 1 Peter 1, 17 and 19, he says, If you call on him who, as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now some people will say, man, I, I don't know about that fear. We, 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 should, we shouldn't fear God. God doesn't want us to fear Him. Do you know though, I mean like, how many of y'all you grew up and you was afraid of your dad? Anybody in here? You know what I'm saying? Like, if I did something wrong, I was afraid that man's going to pull a fly swat out on me. Bare minimum. Bare minimum fly swat. And he had such a look in his face that I was scared to death. We used to go to conferences because he was an attorney and he was in the Republican Party. Doing, he'd go speak at these big conferences. I was like three, four, five years old. And he'd tell me before I got he said, I don't want to see you move, son. And you know what I did? I'd sit there for three hours like this. There'll be people come up, there'll be people come up afterward and they'd be like, Clay, you're sonny. I mean, what a good little fella here. Yeah. They were blown away by my character as a four-year-old. Well, it wasn't nothing but me scared to death. I wasn't a good kid. I had fear. I had reverence. But you know, as I grew, me and my dad had our own set of struggles. That fear kept me in line as I grew. Now, I've got to be honest with you, I slipped into some bad behaviors because my dad had some bad behaviors, and we were both living a sinful lifestyle in various ways. But it got to the point where that shifted because I remember as a teenager, I did some things that I knew my dad wouldn't like, and when he found out about it, he wasn't very angry. He, he, you could tell he was upset, but he just had a look on his face. I knew that I disappointed him. So it was no longer a fear of like, man, I'm afraid my dad will punish me or I'm afraid my dad will hurt me. Now it was something that had shifted and it was, no, I'm afraid I'm going to hurt my dad. And some of you, you need a holy fear of God because you do need to realize that one day you will be judged for every deed done in the body, whether good or evil. You will be judged, period. And you come before a God that is a perfect and righteous judge. The good news is, is, that, is that if you repent and turn to Jesus, you'll be judged according to His sacrifice. You'll inherit eternal life according to what He's done. And you'll be judged based on your works. But it won't be an issue of where you dwell in eternity. Now it'll just be an issue of rewards in eternity because of what Jesus has done. But on the same token, there needs to be a holy fear that comes into your heart that protects you from doing things that are stupid. Amen. He says, live here in the time of your exile with a healthy fear, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. You know what something precious means? It means that it's really the only thing that can provide this. It's precious. It's rare. Because here's the thing. Our forefathers can give us all kinds of things. Your family, maybe your parents, maybe they want to pass down a lot of money to you because they think if you have a lot of money, you'll not have any worries. But do you know that money can't save you? Gold and silver can't save you. It can't redeem your soul. It can't buy you into heaven. Somebody said, well, in our world today, man, we got all this technology and, and we're transforming things and we're able to heal sicknesses now and, and we can make people last longer and live longer. And e even with technology at an all-time high and all the gadgets we got, do you know that suicide and depression and anxiety are at an all-time high? Technology ain't saving the world. Eugenics, well, we can change the genetic code now. Before long, we'll be able to do all kinds of things with human beings. No, folks, your issue is not a genetic disorder. Your issue is sin. And unless Jesus, here's the only thing that can save you from sin and give you eternal life and a new heart and a new mind is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And never take that lightly. It's the only thing that can transform your life. It's the only thing that can give you a new heart and a mind. It's the only thing that can open your heart so that the Holy Spirit can come and dwell and that you can now live a holy lifestyle in the midst of an evil world that is burning up, folks. 
He says, we got a short time here in this exile. We're just strangers and aliens passing through, but we're sent here on mission to live holy lives with a sober mind that reflects the character of God so that more people can come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen? I want you to bow your head with me this morning. The precious blood of Jesus... Have you really surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you really understood what it means to come to a place where you say, Jesus, I recognize that you're a holy God and I'm a sinner. And I need to be saved. I'm filthy, I'm broken, I'm defiled. And God, I ask for forgiveness. If you're here this morning and you've not truly surrendered your life to Jesus, repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ, and you want to do that, you need to do that this morning, and the Spirit of God is drawing you as an act of faith, just raise your hand right now and say, that's me, I've got to give my life to Jesus. Anybody here at all this morning? Amen. And for the rest of us, I want you to ask yourself, have I been intoxicated by this culture? Am I living a life that is just sort of going with the motions and going with the flow? Am I, do I have an intoxicated mind? Lord, I give my mind to you now and I ask you, Lord, to give me a sober mind. And I ask you, Lord, to help me to prepare my mind for action. And we ask you, Lord, to fill us all with your Holy Spirit afresh so that we can live according to your will. And with the short time we have in this life, let us know that we've been sent here on mission as ambassadors and elect exiles chosen to be in this place to reveal your goodness and your nature and make more people in this world citizens of heaven through the power of the gospel. God, fill us with your spirit and use us for that purpose, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to stand to your feet.